Hello and welcome to shipwreckpodcast.com. I'm Rick Mixter, and while most of my stories center around the inland seas we call the Great Lakes, I'm often asked, what is the most famous shipwreck of all? Let's spend a podcast discussing some of the most infamous losses worldwide, and forgive me if we don't dive into too many details about each. I hope this will serve as a great primer on stories that you'll have to do a little research on your own. And we'll start at the dawn of water transportation. Ever since primitive man hollowed out a log to fashion a canoe or wove reeds into a simple boat, he has feared the storm. Northern American Indians were terrified by Kiwatin, the north wind, who brought winter and gusts that killed those who traveled on Gichigumi, the largest of the lakes. It was Kiwatin that ripped the Edmund Fitzgerald into pieces, the largest shipwreck on the largest Great Lake, Superior. Shipwreck stories are as ancient as writing itself. When the Sumerians invented writing, they used reed pencils to etch into clay tablets, a technique that was largely used to record cargo inventories. But it was also a way to preserve stories, the earliest preservations of myths that include monsters and gods and heroes, and some of these stories told of storms and scorned sailors. The earliest records found were about 4,000 years ago in present-day Iraq. Excavations at ancient Nineveh in 1848 turned up the ruins of one of the earliest libraries in history. Seven clay tablets, part of Ashurbanipal's library, were found with wedge-like symbols later called cuneiform. Tablet 4 tells of the Enuma Elish, an Assyrian version of a Babylonian creation story. Chapter 47 talks of the creation of the four winds who were controlled by Marduk. This warrior used these storms to upset the goddess of salt water, who he ultimately defeated to become the chief god of Babylonia. The first ever recorded shipwreck poem was found on Tablet 3. The tale of Atrahasis describes how the world became overpopulated and the god Enlil sends a plague and famine to control it. Not satisfied, he plans a cataclysmic flood, but the god of the sea, Enki, warns a mortal to build an ark. Atrahasis constructs the ship and brings aboard the birds flying in the heavens, the cattle, the creatures of the steppe, and his own family. One translation of the seven-day flood reads like this. The deluge bellowed like a bull. The wind resounded like a screaming eagle. The darkness was dense. The sun was gone. The waters receded and the lifeboat beaches, and Enlil is enraged that his plan was foiled. Enki and the other gods come up with a solution to make humans less fertile. The gods also compromise by sending a she-demon to depopulate the earth by stealing babies from their mother's laps. In essence, the Atrahasis is not only the first story of Noah, but also of the child catcher from Disney's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. The flood story becomes even more detailed in 1900 BCE. Cuneiform tablets tell of the Epic of Gilgamesh, where the hero speaks with Utnapishtim, who survived a flood by building a boat and loading his family and animals aboard. This ship was beached on the slopes of Mount Nashir when the waters receded. It would be a thousand years before scholars believed Genesis would be written. The Bible's flood adds even more detail that Yahweh was upset with the lawlessness on earth and decides to destroy all flesh. 
Noah is a 600-year-old man with a wife and three sons, and God allows them to build an ark of gopher wood. The in-laws and two of every creeping thing on earth are allowed to enter the 300-cubit-long ship, and 40 days and 40 nights of rain commence. 150 days later, the water recedes, and Noah barbecues two of all the clean animals in the ark, in which God enjoys its pleasing odor. The shipwreck rests on Mount Ararat, and Noah's family repopulates the planet. There are over a dozen flood stories from Australia to China. On the Great Lakes, the Ojibwe people share legends of Mishabizi, the snake that lived at the bottom of Lake Superior. The serpent captures the cousin of Nanabozo, who flushed the snake from the lake by quieting the winds and boiling the lake. Mishabizi retaliates by ripping the cousin apart and flooding the earth, forcing the tribes to build a raft that floats above the highest mountains. An arrow from Nanabozo finally finishes the serpent for good. Northern native tribes believe mythical thunderbirds controlled storms and the fierce lightning that echoed for miles. In Mesopotamia, Adad, the Assyrian god, brandished lightning bolts. Marduk also commanded thunderstorms. In nearby Egypt, Set controlled storms. Pyramid interiors tell hieroglyphic tales of the god Ra on his solar sailing voyage in the afterlife. And the Book of the Dead even mentions shipwrecks by name. Let's translate chapter 130, which prays, let not Osiris be shipwrecked on the great voyage by him whose face is in his own lap. Later in chapter 136 reads, The bark of Ra feareth the storm. In the tomb of Mentuhotep, a 20-meter-long papyrus scroll pleads the king should have passage for his good deeds. Quote, I have given bread to the hungry, water to the thirsty, clothes to the naked, and a boat to the shipwreck. Hieroglyphic symbols show sails, masts, ships, and sailors. Several Egyptian stella, or limestone headstones for lack of a better description, depict boats sailing to the underworld. Shipwrecks don't have an individual picture, but a series of images that indicate a lost vessel. At the Pyramid of Pepi, the priests made a grand request to the gods for the king's funeral boat to, quote, pass over the field of Azru and not make a shipwreck of it, close quote. Of all the hieroglyphic stories, my favorite has to be the tale of the shipwrecked sailor. It was written around 2000 BC and tells of a ship 150 cubits long, about half the length of Noah's reported ark. This ship wasn't loaded with animals, though. It had 120 men on board, but all but one were killed when the waves reached nearly 20 feet high. Sailing near present-day Somalia, the ship went down and the sole survivor made it to the remote island of Ka, ruled by a giant snake. The sailor promises great wealth to the snake if he's saved, but the serpent asks his only reward to be kindly descriptions of him when he returned home. The sailor is saved by a passing ship and he brings gifts from the snake to the king, the sailor was rewarded, but the story takes a twist when the reader realizes the story's been told to brighten up a colleague who has bad news for the king. 
The outlook of that royal meeting was grim as the story ends with the listener pleading the storyteller not continue to try to cheer him up. The story ends with, quote, Does one give water to a goose at dawn that will be slaughtered the next morning? In the 8th century BC, another incredible shipwreck story is told by the author Homer. In his sequel to the Iliad, Homer tells the story of Odysseus, the king of Ithaca, who is on a voyage home after the fall of Troy. The voyage is full of perils, including being within earshot of two sirens, who enchant sailors to crash into their rocky shoreline. Odysseus has his men plug their ears with beeswax, but the hero wanted to experience their haunting calls, so he was tied to the mast to prevent him from jumping overboard. The next challenge was literally between a rock and a hard place. In the cliffs lived Scylla, a six-headed monster, and nearby was the whirlpool Charybdis, which threatened to swallow the ship and drag it to the bottom of the sea. Running too close to the shoreline, Odysseus lost six men, one to every fanged head of the serpent Scylla. The voyage from Sicily grew even more deadly when his remaining men ate their cargo of sacred oxen, meant as a tribute to the god Helion. Zeus issues his punishment by smiting the sailors with a thunderbolt. Straightway came the shrieking west wind blowing with a furious tempest, and the blast of the wind snapped both the forestays of the mast so that the mast fell backward and all of its tackling was strewn in the bilge. On the stern of the ship, the mast struck the head of the pilot and crushed all the bones of his skull together. And like a diver, he fell from the deck and his proud spirit left his bones. Therewith, Zeus thundered and hurled his bolt upon the ship. And she quivered from stem to stern, smitten by the bolt of Zeus and was filled with the sulfurous smoke and my comrades fell from the ship. Everyone is killed except Odysseus, who is adrift for ten days until he lands on the island of Ojigia, where the gorgeous nymph Calypso holds him captive for seven years. Odysseus eventually builds a raft to escape, but is shipwrecked again by Poseidon. A great wave sweeping down with terrible power crashed over him and whirled his raft around. Losing the steering oar, he was thrown far from the raft, while a savage blast of tempestuous wind snapped the mast in two, and yardarm and sail fell far off in the sea. Long the wave held him under, for the clothes Calypso gave him weighed him down, and he could not surface from under the great wave's flow. At last he rose and spat out bitter brine that ran to in streams from his hair. Laboring as he was, he still remembered the raft, lunged after it through the breakers, holding tight, clambered to its center, and sat there, trying to escape a deadly fate, and the heavy seas carried the raft to and fro in their path. Just as in autumn the north wind blows a ball of thistle tufts clinging together over the fields, for the winds drove the raft to and fro over the sea. Homer's account is certainly one of the most famous of ancient shipwreck tales, but it's not the most widely published shipwreck tale. If you Google the most famous shipwreck, you may be surprised it's not Titanic, but the story is in the New Testament of the Bible. St. Paul's story begins that he is a staunch Jewish scholar who literally saw the light when Jesus appeared to him while he walked to Damascus. Paul becomes Christ's greatest missionary and God guides him to spread the word far and wide. 
Paul started challenging doctrine in synagogues and wasn't received very warmly. And since the Near East was controlled by Rome, he was arrested for his own protection. Paul was born into a Roman family and he told the local governor he wanted to appeal to the emperor, which was his right as a citizen. The book of Acts in the Bible chronicles Paul's voyage on the Mediterranean as a prisoner of the centurion Julius. Sailing for Rome on a rented Egyptian built boat with 275 others, a midnight storm hit and the crew glimpsed the rocks of the shoreline at Malta. Acts 27 verse 18 continues they tried to lighter the ship of its grain, but it was still pushed towards shore. Four anchors were deployed at morning, but they were cut loose and the ship snagged on the sandbar. Acts 27 41 They ran the ship aground and the forepart struck fast, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. Some survivors swam ashore, Others rode wreckage to a Maltese cove. St. Paul started a fire to get warm, and a venomous snake attacked him. Paul shook the snake off into the fire, and even though the locals were impressed by his immunity to poison, he continued as a prisoner on the long voyage to Rome to be judged by Caesar. The Bible doesn't tell of that outcome, but 300 years later, the historian Eusebi wrote that St. Paul was beheaded by the order of the Emperor Nero. And the story doesn't end there, as discoveries off Malta of giant anchors, which look much like pickaxes, were found in the depths described by the Bible. From the 1960s to 1970s, these Roman-era anchors were discovered at sites that seemed to match the Bible's story. One article says that immunity was granted to these illegal salvages, and in 2002, two anchors were turned over to a Maltese maritime museum. That same year, a tomb was discovered with remains that convinced the Vatican that St. Paul had been discovered. Two years later, a massive 700-kilogram anchor was raised with the Egyptian gods Isis and Serapis inscribed on the flukes. This would certainly fit the description in Acts 27.6. The search for biblical shipwrecks includes many fantastical documentaries about searches for Noah's Ark that continue even today. Claims of the Ark being found seem to start in 1876 and continue with even astronauts, TV stars, and pseudo-historians searching Mount Ararat for evidence. Factual ancient shipwrecks have been known for decades and they're helping to unlock the mysteries that have existed for thousands of years. In 1982, a sponge diver in Turkey told authorities about a shipwreck loaded with metal biscuits that had ears. He was describing rare metal dubbed oxide ingots and historians quickly found the late Bronze Age wreck was a treasure trove of copper, tin, and 150 jars of resin. Jewelry and cargo found in the remains of the 50-foot-long wreck astounded archaeologists who made 22,000 dives to about 170 feet to record and recover it all. Dated to around 1300 BC, the Ulaburan artifacts included the remains of what might be the world's oldest book. Remember the funeral yachts of Ra in Egypt? The remains of over 60 of these ships have been recovered, mostly just dusty timbers raided over the years. But three complete vessels have been found, including the second bark of Pharaoh Khufu, discovered only a decade ago. Dismantled after his death in 2,000 pieces, the yacht was found covered in 41 limestone slabs. Historians toiled over whether to recover them or leave them in place. 
Ultimately, it was discovered the tomb was open to environmental and insect damage, so they began the process of preservation and hopefully reassembly according to the hieroglyphic instructions found with the shipwreck. You may have heard of the Antikythera shipwreck from the first century BC located off the island of Crete. Located in 1900, divers were reportedly aghast to find human forms on the bottom of the ocean. These turned out to be larger-than-life bronze and marble statues of three men. But the true treasure was an ancient mechanism found that contained dozens of gears. Later technology would unlock details buried within the fragile clockwork and find that it was an astronomical calculator that could tell the positions of five planets along with the sun and phases of the moon. Dives have continued into modern times with an additional shipwreck found nearby. A 2,000-year-old skeleton was found within the wreckage, more clues to shipwrecks that have been providing tantalizing clues for over a century. Another recent discovery of an infamous explorer's ship has many skeptical. Located in Haiti, the media were told the remains of Christopher Columbus' Santa Maria were found. Why most archaeologists scoffed was because Columbus himself wrote the ship was lost when the cabin boy was allowed to steer the ship against Christopher Columbus's orders. It ran aground and the ship was dismantled and was used to create a building on the island. The recent discoverer said he found a cannon as well, leading many to wonder why the explorer would leave such a valuable asset at the bottom of the ocean. That cannon mysteriously disappeared before it could be recovered. Another ship, also named for the Virgin Mary, made headlines in 1971. It was the rediscovery of the English ship Mary Rose, lost in a battle with France in 1545. A large section containing two decks of the port side were found buried beneath the bottom of the English Channel. 19,000 artifacts from boots to rosaries and knit combs were found in the section when it was raised in 1982. Today, it's preserved in glycol and on display in England. Another famous British ship was found in 2009. Not one of the 1,100 sailors aboard HMS Victory survived the freak storm in October of 1744. The mystery of their whereabouts was unlocked when two cannons were recovered 300 feet down in the English Channel. A plan to raise the shipwreck was announced seven years ago, but nothing has materialized. A 1622 hurricane sank one of the most famous treasure ships ever discovered. The Spanish Nuestra Señora de Atocha was found in 1985 and jewels continue to surface. A 2011 recovery of a half-million-dollar emerald ring listed it by Guinness as the most valuable shipwreck ever. Six years after Atocha was lost, the most powerful warship ever built was sunk by a simple gust of wind. King Gustav II's Vasa launched in Sweden with twice the armament it was designed for, and when a gust pushed it to port on its maiden trip, it flooded through the gun ports and sank with the loss of 30 sailors. Ironically, the gun foundry still had eight more guns the military was supposed to have on board. Vasa was protected for centuries by the Baltic's low oxygen levels, and the majority of the ship was lifted carefully from Stockholm's harbor in 1961. 35 million visitors have visited the shipwreck to date. Fifty years after Vasa was lost to a storm, the Great Lakes claimed their first shipwreck. History has forgotten its name, but historians believe it was named for New France's governor Frontenac, and it ran aground on Lake Ontario by a careless pilot. Here is Father Louis Hennepin's description of the loss. 
On December 20th, Monsieur de la Salle arrived from Fort Frontenac with a great bark to supply us with provisions, rigging, and tackling for the new ship we designed to build at the mouth of Lake Erie. But that bark was unfortunately cast away on Lake Ontario within two leagues of Niagara. Aboard the bark were the anchors and tackle for LaSalle's cargo ship that he was to build beyond Niagara Falls, Le Griffon. Sailing over the summer of 1679, it would be the first ship larger than a canoe to venture onto Lakes Erie, Huron, and Michigan. Griffin vanished in a storm on its return trip, and claims of its discovery have been published since the 1930s. Here's Michigan State underwater archaeologist Wayne Lusardi. The shipwreck's been pretty interesting. It's uh, The Griffin, of course, is the oldest Euro European vessel that's thought to be in the upper Great Lakes. And it's been sought after since the day it sank in the 1600s. And so there have been many claims of Griffin uh, sightings and all of them have not come to fruition. Uh, I've been working as a state maritime archeologist since 2002 and I've gone on 17 Griffins. Um, none of, only two of which were actually shipwrecks. The rest were things like net stakes and telephone poles and pole barn fragments and uh, rock formations and other things. And so uh, it remains elusive. It has not yet been found. I say that with all <laughs> authority. Uh, it, will it be found? I don't know. It depends, I guess, on the circumstances of its loss and exactly how it broke up or didn't break up or where it settled, that sort of thing. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention a famous pirate ship lost in 1718 when Blackbeard's Queen Anne's Revenge stranded. Discovered off North Carolina in 1996, it is slowly being recovered piece by piece, which includes a bell dated 1705. In 2007, another Spanish treasure ship was located and the half-billion-dollar cargo went directly to court, where it was determined it was from the Nuestra Señora de la Mercedes, a warship sunk by the British in 1804. The Spanish government took the cargo from U.S. Salvers and it is now on display at several museums. The Great Lakes are filled with historic ships lost over the past 300 years. Two that are protected by the Canadian government are the Hamilton and Scourge, lost in a storm during the War of 1812. Author James Fenimore Cooper found a survivor of the USS Scourge who had luckily found a lifeboat after the foundering. Here is Edward Ned Meyer's account of the storm that took two warships and nearly 100 crewmen. A flash of lightning almost blinded me. The thunder came in at the next instant, and with it the rushing of winds that fairly smothered the clap. The instant that I was aware there was a squall, I sprang for the jib sheet. The wind snapped the sail so hard it nearly broke Ned's arm, and he figured his best bet was to jump into Lake Ontario. His narrative continues as a crewmate begs him not to leave the schooner. The man probably saw me and that I was about to spring for it. He called out, don't jump overboard. The schooner is riding. Ned figured the waves were still a better place to be than aboard the scourge as it plunged. It now came across me that if the schooner should write, she was filled and must go down and that she might carry me with her in the suction. I made a spring, therefore, and fell into the water several feet from the place where I had stood. It is my opinion the schooner sank as I left her. Survivors found a small lifeboat and they clambered aboard. Thirteen men were all that survived the two sinkings, but as their fleetmate Julia neared, they were anything but friendly. Ned called back to the voices aboard the ship. 
Boat ahoy, I answered. If you pull another stroke, I'll fire into you, came back. It was clear we were mistaken for an enemy, and I called out to know what the schooner was. This is the Scourge's boat. Our schooner has gone down, and we want to come alongside. A voice now called from the schooner, Is that you, Ned? This, I knew, was from my old shipmate and schoolfellow, Jack Mallet, who was acting as bosun on the Julia. 159 years would pass until a Canadian dentist went searching for the shipwrecks, finding them in 1973. Ownership of the U.S. ships was transferred to Canada in 1980, and shortly afterwards, Jacques Cousteau's team dove down to the wrecks. The Hamilton and Scourge sank quickly just 1,500 feet apart from each other. The worst shipwreck in Great Lakes history has to be the Eastland, which rolled over at the dock in July of 1912. 844 people lost their lives in what should have been a company picnic excursion. In 1860, over 300 lives were lost during a storm on Lake Michigan. The Lady Elgin was rammed by an out-of-control schooner and the ship immediately started to sink. A divinity student named Ed Spencer plunged into the crashing waves to save 17 who managed to make it ashore. He said not one of them ever thanked him. The wreck is badly broken up and was discovered by diver Harry Zeit. I spent three years researching and I spent another 17 looking for it. What happened was we were searching one of our, our uh, grids in our normal search pattern and as we were searching along I had this target that was way at the outside edge of the sonar screen. And I looked at it and I said, well, that's something, we'll get it on the next cast. But meanwhile, as we're continuing on the, on the search line to complete the grid, we got another target that was bigger and better. And consequently, I sat there and uh, got excited by that and said, we got to look at this. We turned around, came back, marked it, got the hook over the side, and uh, I sent my crew member down to take a look at it since he'd never been on a shipwreck first. And uh, he came back down and came up real excited and said, these are the biggest boilers I've ever seen. And when I heard that, I knew that we had a real good chance of having the lady. But I swam down and I was very disappointed because I had no proof. I did not have a providence that would tell me that this was the Lady Elgin. It took me two or three weeks of, of searching the area before I found the proof that I needed. We found a spoon with the uh, name Lady Elgin carved in the handle. If you were to judge the most famous shipwreck by modern times, it would clearly be Titanic. Its scope warrants a complete podcast or two and continues to fascinate people 100 years after its sinking. In 2019, tickets to dive the shipwreck cost over $100,000. Exhibits of her artifacts tour the world and bring in record crowds. Recently, it was announced that a new bacteria was found two miles down in the deep Atlantic that was quickly dissolving the Titanic. 1,517 people lost their lives when Titanic hit the iceberg, but it pales in comparison to the wartime sinking of the Wilhelm Gustloff. Loaded with over 5,000 German refugees, the ship was discovered by a Russian sub and torpedoed near Poland. 996 people survived what is the worst maritime disaster ever. Officially, 6,050 were lost, but some estimates have put the total closer to 9,000. The shipwreck is off-limits to divers and 144 feet in the Baltic Sea. The loss of the RMS Lusitania to a German submarine claimed the lives of 1,198 people, including 128 Americans. 
When Germany declared open season on any ships, it drove America into World War I. The wreck has been salvaged over the years and lies in 300 feet of water off the coast of Ireland. World War I fired up shipyard construction on the Great Lakes, and two warships built for France have become among the most sought-after wrecks ever. Launched on Northern Lake Superior, the Inkerman and Ciro Soleil sailed for Michigan from Ontario when a storm kicked up. Two days later, their fleetmate made it to the Sioux Locks and was surprised the other two minesweepers weren't there. 76 French sailors and two Canadian pilots vanished in the November gale. Two modern search efforts have been underway to figure out where those 140-foot-long ships are. The sweeper that made it, Sebastopol, was later shipwrecked in 1933 off the coast of Ireland. World War II shipwrecks continue to be found in several oceans. The USS Lexington and USS Indianapolis were recently found, but perhaps the most famous of shipwrecks from that conflict has to be the battleship Arizona. Sunk by a surprise Japanese attack in 1941, it is now part of a national park that is visited by nearly two million people every year. A new $2 million improvement to the floating dock above the shipwreck reopened in September of 2019. 900 men were lost when the ship sank at Pearl Harbor. Our list of notable shipwrecks would not be complete without talking about one of the most famous shipwrecks in America, the Edmund Fitzgerald. It has the notoriety of being the largest vessel ever lost on the Great Lakes, succumbing to a November gale on November 10, 1975 with the loss of its entire crew. The Fitzgerald certainly made worldwide headlines when it vanished, but it was a song written by a Canadian folk singer that put the spotlight on Lake Superior. This is another wreck that certainly deserves a podcast of its own, and I'm committed to doing so, not only based on the 25 years of research that I've found, including interviews with all of the expedition leaders who have searched for clues 500 feet down, but I'd like to offer my own insight from my visit in 1994 on the tiny submersible Delta. Look for that podcast in the near future. In the meantime, you can listen to Gordon Lightfoot's song or watch any of my documentaries on the subject. You can visit lakefury.com for a synopsis of any of my documentaries on Great Lakes shipwrecks, which includes interviews with survivors from the 1913 and 1940 storms, as well as the largest ships lost on Lakes Huron, Michigan, and Erie. As with all of the famous shipwrecks I've outlined in this podcast, they all have incredible stories that continue to fascinate history buffs long after they slip beneath the waves. I'm Rick Mixter. Thanks for listening to shipwreckpodcast.com.